It's other than the January 30th congregational meeting after the morning worship. And then food. <clears throat> to make up for all that hardship of voting. Um, other than that, we have the call to worship. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us rise and sing Psalm 92a, 92a. God, there is no wrong in you, and you are a rock and refuge, Lord, a place to go to in times of trouble. Ultimately, God, trusting in you and your providence, knowing that even through fiery trials and even though our bodies be slain, we shall be yours and you shall be ours, as we will see this evening. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hymn 528.
as we continue to thank and praise you, God, for the day you've given us, a time of peace and a place of shelter, Lord, where we can hear your name magnified, where we can praise you, Lord, and learn of your word and be with the saints, God, and have a foretaste of heaven. We pray in particular, Lord God, that your spirit would be with your church throughout the world. The churches, Lord, in foreign lands, God, we know very little of them. We hear a little here and there, perhaps, and we pray for them, nevertheless, for they are yours, God, and they are therefore uh, part of our family as well. We pray, God, for the churches of uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America, God, that you would be with them, that you would help them, Lord, stand firm in the midst of corruption and weak economies and many other places, God, and uh, in particular, Lord, for physical protection from cartels and the like, and that they would have a growth of spiritual truth, that they would learn and grow through your word, God, especially for the Reformed churches to be a light in the dark world and help instruct, Lord, the other churches. There is a high number of uh, Pentecostal churches and lots of confused teaching down in those areas, God, and they pray and ask, Lord, that you would bring revival and wake those churches up, Lord, and help those members and the pastors, God, to be guided to a pure and a greater understanding of your word and in practice. We pray also for our brothers and sisters in Africa, Lord, that you would also be with them and protect them, God, in the difficult places they may find themselves in, and that you would watch over them and help guide them towards greener pastures, Lord, and places of protection for their physical well-being, and especially for their spiritual well-being, God. And, uh, Lord, although we know, again, very little of those churches, our hearts go out to any of the difficulties and hardships that they may have, Lord, that you would help them, overcome them, give them the leaders they need. We pray and ask God also for uh, the churches of Europe, uh, a dying nation, a collection of nations, spiritually speaking, God. The number of just conservative churches, let alone reformed churches, is very small from our understandings. We pray that you would also be with them and help them, Lord, spread the truth of your word through their Nations through our mother countries, God. Many of us have roots uh, over in Europe, Lord, and so our hearts go out to them as well. We pray, God, for the churches of the Middle East and their protection in particular, Lord, uh, where they are surrounded by people who are outright in hatred of them, not just politically, uh, but especially religiously with the Muslims, God, and that you'd be with the churches of uh, Africa and Asia and India, Lord, and the China Providence, God, in particular, that you would help them, Lord, to stand firm and not water down the gospel, uh, that they, Lord, would, that is, Christians who are struggling there, find faithful churches, God, uh, find pastors, uh, men after your own heart, we pray. They would have the pure and adulterated word, God, and access to that. We pray for the protection from oppressive government therein. We think of brothers and sisters in North Korea, in particular, God, that you would also be with them and give them protection, Lord, wherever they may be. Our Father, we ask that you would be with your church, help purify her, strengthen her, and protect her wherever she may be across this globe. We lift up our work situation before you, God, that you would help us in your providence, Lord, to do the right thing in our jobs, perhaps to find a better job, to do work well as unto the Lord, God, to be wise and to... And be studious in our jobs and work well. We pray in particular, God, for the economy we find ourselves in, that the inflation would not grow worse, Lord. It hurts above all the poor. And, of course, the middle class and the rich the least amount. And so, God, we ask that these things would change and that we can help one another, especially in the churches, God, that they would know that even in difficult economic times, Lord, that we take care of our own. And so, Lord, we also pray for viable jobs in our economy, God. Again, for our, our neighbor, Lord, who may not be a Christian, and yet we wish the best for them. Uh, and certainly we wish them to be saved above all. And so we ask that there would be better viable jobs, jobs that can support a family, Lord, so that both parents don't have to work anymore, that that uh, stop being the norm in this nation, especially for Christian churches that we could help and that they would have access to good jobs, Lord, uh, the young families in our churches across this nation. We pray for our jobs as stewards, as those who are over the things that ultimately you own, Lord, the clothing on our back, Lord, the food on our table, uh, the roof over our head. Yes, we say they are ours, but we know ultimately they are yours, and we are supposed to take care of them and use them aright, God, and not abuse them, not waste them away, Lord, not let them rot away, God. So we ask that we would be wise and that we would persevere in doing the right thing with the resources you've given us, God, and not only the resources of physical things that you've blessed us with, Lord, but also monetary and also our abilities. 
Lord, and the things that we know and the things that we can do and the time that you've given us, that we redeem it, that is, use it aright and not waste it, God, for the things and the tasks that we have before us, especially for those close to us, we pray. Help us, we pray this evening, God, to draw nigh unto you by your spirit, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. you, God, and again, thank you for the opportunity for these tithes and offerings, God. Be with their use and multiply them, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Zechariah, the Old Testament near the end. Zechariah 13. Seven through nine, Zechariah seventeen or thirteen, seven through nine. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one third should be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Let us pray. With these words, God of old, although over 2,000 years, they prophesied of the coming of Christ, Lord, several hundred years before his time. And it is nevertheless still relevant for us today, God, for Christ is still working in this day and age to purify his church, even though at times we feel that we are scattered. Help us, we pray, God, to nevertheless stand firm, to know that you are with us no matter how uh, dark the situation may be. As we see here, God, where two-thirds fall away, we'll have nothing to do with our Lord and Savior. Help us, God, to persevere. In your name alone we pray. Amen. So here we have more details that we are familiar with when it comes to prophecies fulfilled compared to other parts of Zechariah, as we read before. There are details of the life of Christ, as well as the disciples around him, in fact. But there is also descriptions of of the body of believers and unbelievers here. Both individual and group differences are present, in fact. So at the beginning of chapter 13, we have... That one verse I went over, in that day a fountain shall be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants. The phrase in that day is used a number of times there in verse 12 and then here in verse 13 as well. Pointing to the future of looking down at the time of Christ as one day, prophetically speaking, or we should say metaphorically to pointing of the future, but of course it's many days, many years as Christ was on the earth for 33 years. But in terms of Thousands of years, it might as well be one day. And many things shall happen. Of course, there we see in verse 1 of 13, the fountain shall be opened. That is, the blood of Christ Jesus for God's people shall be there with them. That's pretty particular. Here we have some details, but it's a combination of individual fulfillment, as we see in Christ and his disciples in particular, 
And then broadly, just a whole bunch of people within the body of the Jews and of the church, and not anyone in particular. That's how prophecies go. At the time, they're not always clear, and God has his purpose for that, but they're clear enough to strengthen the weak faith of the Jews of old. And in retrospect, we can see even more of the beauties of the prophecy. And that is my goal this evening, to see it and to learn thereby. We should not lose sight of the greater message that God will scatter his people, yes, but he will find them and purify them. And even the striking of the shepherd, as we know, turned to their own good, didn't it? That is the fiery trials of life to tie it into the sermon this morning. I did not plan it that way. Uh, again, many themes overlap in the Bible. They're part of God's plan for the good of his people. They will call on my name and I'll answer them and they will say, and I will say, this is my people. And each one of them will say, the Lord is my God. That is a good ending indeed, no matter how fiery the trial. The first point, striking the shepherd, verse 7 and following. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. What we read here, of course, is he's speaking of, the, of a sword, not literally, but metaphorically. It's a shorthand description of judgment, of something bad happening. A sword is often used for that in the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament, the ancient Near East and all the other cultures around there would speak that way. It didn't necessarily have to be literally a sword. Christ died on a cross. He was pierced in the side with a spear. He was beaten. He was not stabbed with a sword. So the sword is a metaphor, a picture of judgment. But what about this sword? What about this judgment? Who wields it? Does man wield it? Is man in control of this sword? No, it is God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, says the Lord of hosts. God is in charge of judgments upon this world. The bad things that happen are not happenstance. They're not random chance, but part of God's plan as he directs the evil of this world to bring judgment upon people or to wake up his own people, as we will read and understand a little later. As the judge of the universe and Lord of truth, there is nothing on on this earth outside of his control. The judgments we see in America, for example, come from God. Difficulties, the trials and tribulations that are clear to us as the sun is in the middle of the day, comes from God. The tsunamis, right, they hit Japan, and elsewhere, and you hear these Christians making excuses for them. Well, it wasn't really God. You know, these things kind of happen. It was God. He was trying to wake up Japan. Some of them, I believe, did wake up. We know uh, Murray, our missionary, was over there, and he was working with people and talking to them about what does it mean? What, what's the significance of this? And so God is in charge. I want to highlight here. It is God waking up the sword, isn't he? It is God who is striking the shepherd. And which shepherd is that? My shepherd, he says. It's to wake up his, the people that are asleep. It's to bring fear upon those who have no fear. It is to disciple God's people when they are in sin. It is to train us to keep our eyes on him and not on this world as well. We heard again this morning, trials don't have to be evidence of sin necessarily in your life. They're there to teach you a lesson one way or the other, whether with sin or else without your sin involved. And this should be comforting today. For the difficulties we see all around us are under God's control and part of his plan, whatever that may be. If the greatest event in world history, as you recall in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, you, by the foreordained power and knowledge of God, by his preordained plans of eternity past, he determined that these things shall come to pass, and yet it is you who killed his son, but it was part of God's plan nevertheless. They blasphemed the Lord, as we read in 1 Peter, right? But you glorified him. Same moral event. <clears throat> so the imagery here is still shocking, of course, as you can imagine, to the original listeners, to the Jews of old, especially to the faithful, hearing about God taking up the sword of judgment, not against the heathen nations around them, not against Egypt, not against Syria, but against my shepherd, against one who was my companion, he says. And we all know that's Christ. We know that's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. 
As a shepherd, of course, that is one of many titles given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. It is an ancient title, again, uh, many things and languages and concepts, broadly speaking, of course, are similar to other nations around them. Kings would be describing themselves as shepherds. Of course, they were trying to appease the people and say, well, I'm here, I really care for you. You know, we talk about our politicians today. I really love you, I'm one of your own people, right? And they would say, I'm a shepherd, I'm here to take care of you and protect you from wolves and whatnot. They would use that metaphor. But for God, of course, it's a real thing. Christ really is our shepherd. He's not just saying it so that you don't have a rebellion on his hands. But he really is our shepherd. No other person but the same divine person, Jesus Christ, is this shepherd one who guides, who feeds, and protects the sheep. He guides by the word, as we know. He feeds by the word as well. He protects by the word. These are not the only ways by which he does these things in his providence, but also the church, one another, providence. These are the ways in which he is our shepherd, in which he protects us. And so you can imagine how surprising it is to the original audience hearing Zechariah prophesy that God will strike and take a sword against his shepherd. Is there something wrong with the shepherd, perhaps, you're thinking? What, why, why would he strike the shepherd? Well, we know Jesus had nothing wrong with him. He was the perfect man and fully God as well. And we know this shepherd here, prophesied of old, there is no hint of him being a sinner. He says, in fact, against the man who is my companion... My companion. This shows the intimate character of the shepherd with the Lord of hosts, the Lord of power and might and armies with the shepherd, that the shepherd who will guide and protect the flock is close to the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, closer than anyone else could ever be. He describes no one else as that here in these prophecies, but the shepherd that we know to be Jesus. He is the one who is my companion. Nobody can be the Lord's companion, the Father's companion, except the Son. There's a hint, I would argue, of divinity here of the shepherd in these prophecies. That it's not just another human shepherd like David, perhaps. Remember, kings were called shepherds. But the shepherd, capital S, and the companion, capital C, he who is with the Father as no one else can be with the Father. And he is, as we know, stricken says the Lord of hosts, Take, he speaks to the sword, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. To shatter their expectation of what deliverance will look like. Why does he strike Jesus Christ? To shatter the expectations of what deliverance will look like. That deliverance from the Messiah the first time around will not be physical, it will not be material, it will not be political. And it was not. In the Old Testament, the deliverance given by the judges, given by the kings, given even by prophets at times, were often physical, material, or political, weren't they? And that's what they were looking for. And here, and in other prophecies, as we know, we'll go over Isaiah a little bit, we have what seems to be such a counterintuitive, an opposite picture of what deliverance seems to be like it should be in the Old Testament background. Imagine growing up and having all these great historic heroic stories of David and the miracles and the like, and you're thinking, well, this is what the Messiah is going to do. This is great stuff. Well, he is. That's the second coming. The first coming, no. The shepherd is stricken. The companion of God, he who is near him, and their king will not look like a king to the world. And so it shatters their expectations and redirects them uh, towards the might that God has, even through the weak things. I mean, God already does that at times, doesn't he? Gideon's the great story in the Old Testament where God's like, no, I don't want a thousand soldiers. I don't even want 600 soldiers. You're going to fight and win the battle with 300 soldiers. I really want a small so that my name is magnified and large. And you have a similar thing happening with the coming of Christ the first time. Another reason why he is stricken, that is, pedagogically wise, what's the lesson? We know why for our deliverance, right? For our salvation. Uh, but I'm talking about there's also a teaching method behind it as well, to winnow out the false followers, the hypocrites. The true believers will trust God knowing that he is doing what he plans to do, and this is not outside of control. They will trust that God is striking the shepherd for a good reason, even though the shepherd has done nothing wrong. 
and to drive the true followers to take this verse and other verses which prophesy upon the coming Messiah and meditate upon them and try to grow and learn about what Christ and what the Messiah, what the shepherd, what the companion, what the coming king, what the coming priest, all Jesus, different names for Jesus in the Old Testament, entails. And this reminds us, if they were to dig from this passage, and it gets their attention, the believer's like, what's going on here? This is really fascinating. Why is my potential deliverer? Obviously a shepherd would be a deliverer, someone who protects and watches over the people. Why would he be stricken? And you would go to chapter 12, verse 10, and you would read, And then they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son. Oh, that's right. Zechariah said earlier that we're going to be mourning for this man, this great man of God, who has been pierced. And then perhaps Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The suffering of Jesus saves us. The piercing of Jesus, the striking of Jesus, is for our transgressions that he took what we deserved instead. That's obviously what this picture is about. What this prophecy is about. The striking of the shepherd. The sword against the man who is my companion. It is ultimately for our deliverance. The scattering of the sheep, verses 7 through 8 or the latter half of 7, 7b. <clears throat> Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This was obviously fulfilled in the New Testament, as we know in Matthew 26, 31. Matthew 26, 31, we read, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, Jesus tells them, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Often the New Testament writers would quote the Old Testament to show its fulfillment. Matthew's very good at doing this. It goes over and over again because the Gospel of Matthew is written to Jews. So he almost always mentions the kingdom of heaven instead of calling it the kingdom of God, for example. And he also quotes a lot of Old Testament. He wants the Jews to see, this is is fulfilling everything you know about. What I grew up with. We're on the same page, my my fellow men. But here we see that Jesus, not the writers of the gospel, but Jesus himself quotes the Old Testament, says, it's being fulfilled right now. This is it. This pa- he's quoted this passage. And so we see again why Zechariah is often called the gospel of Zechariah, or the gospel, the old gospel book of the Old Testament, right? It's so much about Jesus the coming of the Messiah and of Christ in such a small book. Isaiah is huge. Jeremiah is huge. But these are so explicit. There's so many prophecies, it seems, almost back to back, all through here, chapter 12, for example. On that day, on that day, on that day, five times. And of course, I pointed out the introduction. So in this set of prophecies here, you have both particular fulfillment, that is individual fulfillment and details, and broad fulfillment, that is uh, patterns and groups of people uh, going over history, for example. Here it's a particular fulfillment of particular people. Christ says, you, my disciples, will stumble tonight. And they did. They scattered. All the disciples did, didn't they? Not one stayed with Jesus. Verse 8 and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. This is a sad prophecy. I mean, again, imagine back then hearing this. You're like, what's happening to our shepherd? I thought he was your companion, someone close to you. And the sheep are going to scatter and two-thirds are going to die? That's good news? <laughs> This reminds us, and again, the believers of old who have access to the Old Testament at the time, of the remnant theology, that is, the doctrine of the remnant, that there is an elect within the elect, that not all Israel is Israel, to quote Paul in Romans 2. 
For many are called, Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, but few are chosen. A few may be several hundred million, to be sure, or a billion. I mean, there's been lots of humans, but it's certainly not the entire human race. We see this at the time of Jesus. What do we see? The Messiah, the promised, prophesied shepherd, comes to his people, and they reject them in mass. The vast majority of them reject them. They want nothing to do with Jesus. This is not the one we thought was going to save us. He's supposed to overcome and overthrow Rome, for example. He did nothing of the kind. He overthrew their sins. And they weren't happy with that because, you know, a lot of the Pharisees didn't really think they had much sin to deal with. The fall of Jerusalem was more evidence of many who would not and refused to turn to Jesus. And they were slaughtered in Jerusalem. And Israel, that is the Jewish nation, has never been the same since then. Over the centuries, of course, as the church grew through persecution and the like, in the 100s, 200s, and 300s, on to the Reformation today and across the world, many indeed have been called. Called and called to repent. Called to believe and trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. But few have heeded the call. But there's a purpose to this call. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. To purify the remaining people of God, this is the remnant. Some Jews did believe. A lot of Jews believed. We read in Acts, but certainly not the vast majority of the Jews. They had 5,000 converts in one day. That's amazing. There were those who heard, as through fire, of course. We know in the New Testament era, part of that fire, again, a metaphor, a picture of trials and tribulations, was the synagogues kicking them out and persecuting them, Acts 7 and 8. Paul was part of that persecution. He went after them and stoned Christians. That's part of the fire they went through, the winnowing, the refine them as silver is refined, right? You take the... Gold, you take the silver, you put it into an iron furnace because there's dross and leftover rocks that you dig out of the earth that's dirty and whatnot, and the silver and the gold will survive and the dross melts off and you can separate it and the like. That's the picture. That's what's described here. So that that which is impure, again, a metaphor for sins, will be purged away from God's people. They will be more holy and more sanctified. They'll be saved, in fact, and justified. And this leads us, as we're talking here in this point of sanctification, to the third point, verses 8 through 9. God will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them. This difficult time in the church, and indeed difficult times throughout the New Testament era we find ourselves in, is part of God's plan to refine us, to make us more like Him, to flee the sins of this world, the temptations to steal and lie and cheat and lust in our hearts and be unjustly angry or bitter, disobedient. These things God is purging from us even now. We read in Isaiah 125, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. Dross is that which you don't want on the gold and silver. And take away all your alloy. You're not going to be mixed. An alloy is a mixture of metals, isn't it? Often it's weak, but there are some good alloys. Often it's weak. You want the best of the metal, a pure metal. I'll restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you should be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her penitence with righteousness. God will purify and make his church more holy, more obedient. We read in Malachi 3.1, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. (laughs) We can scrub it out. Get rid of the dross and leftover 
And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And that's fulfilled when Christ came the first time, brothers and sisters, even to this day. And although Christ is only stricken once and his disciples scattered once, broadly speaking, we're scattered often through persecutions and we were pushed through the world. Part of the way Christianity grew was through persecutions by pushing us out because you don't want to stay around and die. You don't have to die. If you don't have to, then you flee. And many fled. Paul fled. Jesus says, not my time to die, and he went through the crowd. You don't look for death. That's not the call of the Christian as such. And they spread across the world, and there's that scattering as well, and the remnant and the purging of the early church, of the Jewish church in particular, where many of the Jews threw uh, Jesus away and wanted nothing to do with them, and so they were cut off and died. The branches that were thrown into the fire. But there is a one-third, as we know, a remnant of the Jews and of the Gentiles across this world that God has been with, and he has purified us. It's a metaphor of sanctification to be more obedient and more like him. The nature of the fire that God uses here is, uh, first again, during the time of Christ, we know that persecution and fear for the disciples. But for us today, it's all kinds of things. We talked about that this morning. We talked about the various sundry ways in which fiery trials, purging trials, are there for our lives. When we do the right thing and we still suffer for it, the fire can be intense, the fire can be quick, catches us off guard. It's more than we realize, but regardless of the type of purging, type of refining being done in our lives, we should know it's part of God's prophecy and God's love for his people. We are part of his plan, and it is for our good and for his glory. And so, here at the end, part of the conclusion of this refining is, they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. They will call out my name. In what sense? In a twofold sense, I think. I don't think it's just one way, but two ways, and you understand what I mean. The first time, that is being born again. Conversion. That's the calling out. I want God to save me. I see my sins. The Jews, the First Testament, the New Testament era, were crying out to God under Peter. Peter preached. They felt convicted. They said, we have sin. What shall we do? We deserve damnation and judgment. And Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized. There is deliverance. They cried out, and God answered them. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. And every time there's a new believer who cries out to God for deliverance because they see their sins, they know that they are disobedient, they know they have hatred in their heart, and that these things are wrong. And they cry out to God. They are calling out his name, and they say, the Lord is my God. That's what happens. But also a lifetime of crying out, right? Not just the first time what we call conversion, where God brings the refining fire of the law and thus brings repentance, but also just everyday life as a Christian, where we get distracted at times and we need a reminder or God disciplines us as believers and we have to turn back to our God again. Uh, There's descriptions of the Old Testament and the New Testament of carnal Christians and Corinthians. The Old Testament talks about Christians who have turned away or backslidden and come back again, that is the Jews, the Old Testament saints. They too will call upon God. They too will repent. God will refine them as well. Well, either way, it works. It's God refining his people. It's God using, as we know, the law of God to bring conviction upon the hearts. And they cry out for mercy. This language we read, the Lord is my God and this is my people, is another way of speaking of the covenant-keeping God. It is used multiple times in the Old Testament, although in a slightly different form here. We'll read it here in the New Testament, for example. 2 Corinthians 6.16. In 2 Corinthians 6.16 we read, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Why are you hanging out with the Gentile idolaters? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall what? Be my people. That's the refrain of the Old Testament. Here it's a little different. It's God saying, this is my people, and they say, you are my God. It's the same, clearly, idea. Same, absolutely the same idea. It's the covenant-keeping idea. God has not made a covenant with anyone else other than his people. His people were uh, Jewish in the Old Testament. If you were a Gentile, you became a Jew. 
You weren't one biologically, but you were one religiously, the Jewish church, we call it. And today, you don't have to be a Jew. You're just in the church. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, you can be saved. You don't have to be Jewish anymore. That's the big difference between the Testaments. It's the same salvation, though. It's the same promise. It's the same covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we say from our perspective, the Lord is my God, and God says from his perspective, this is my people, and no one else. And I will take care of them. I will love them. I will care for them. Even though I'm striking the shepherd, it's for their good. And as we know, it is. Because if the shepherd isn't stricken, we're going to be stricken instead. Christ took our punishment upon him. Revelation 21.3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> tabernacle of God is with men. We know this very clearly as Reformed people. Yeah, yeah, all the Old Testament imagery is for us today. It's the church. It's imagery of the church. It's imagery of God being close to his people. And he will, <clears throat> he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. There it is again. The language of the Old Testament applied to the New Testament because it's the same church, same salvation. The difference is we don't have to be Jewish. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's a promise. That's hope. That's comfort. Even though there's a refining, even though people fall around us like grass consumed by fire, as we saw up north. Everywhere, but it doesn't go in some places. Some places were touched at all. You kind of look at that and go, how, how did that miss that building? How did that miss that car? How did it miss him? How did it miss that blade of grass? That's the refining of God's providence where he purges out the hypocrites and keeps his people. Whenever times are hard, brothers and sisters, cry out to God for help, and he will answer you, and he will say, this is my people. And each one of us will say, the Lord is my God. Let us pray. We thank you, God, that we can say that. Even though it doesn't always feel that way, yet it's true. Your word tells us that if we repent of our sins and trust in you, you are our God and we are your people. And that comes with the promise and all the obligations therein, Lord, that you are a shepherd, you are our companion, God. You are close to us, you will protect us, you will refine us and make us more like you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Hymn 433, 433.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may his countenance be upon you and give you peace. Amen.